today on our show. A nerdy dive into the air that surrounds us and how science can help us to take something as familiar as our own breath and see its strangeness and mystery again. You know you need air to live. Let's explore some new reasons to love it. I'm Ben Lord. Let's talk about what we love. You're listening to I Heart This, a podcast about rediscovering a world full of wonder. In the last season of the show Mythbusters, they pulled out all the stops, and its third episode was one of the biggest stunts they ever pulled. In every episode of Mythbusters, of course, there has to be a myth for them to test, and in this episode, it was this. Not too long ago, there was a guy who worked in a rail yard, and like most rail yards, railroad tracks crisscrossed each other in a tangled web crowded with railroad cars. And one dreary day, this guy went out to clean a tanker car. Now, a tanker car is just like what it sounds, a giant cylindrical tank on wheels, like a 60-foot-long barrel tilted on its side. And it was the job of this rail yard guy to climb up onto the tanker car, open the hatch, and steam clean the insides. So in this particular dreary, overcast day, the rail yard guy is steam cleaning a tanker car when it starts to rain. He's just about done anyway, so he finishes up, closes up the hatch, climbs down, finds someplace dry, and the next morning... According to the legend, his co-workers show up to the rail yard to find that particular tanker car, the one our guy had cleaned the previous night, completely demolished. And all the workers are standing there scratching their heads. How could this have happened? These tanker cars are huge. One of them is almost as long as my house, 15 feet tall, designed to withstand the forces of a rail collision, walls of steel nearly an inch thick. What the heck? The Mythbusters, in their effort to put this legend to the test, got their own tanker car. It took them several tries, but eventually they captured, on camera, the near-instantaneous implosion of an enormous tanker car. When it was all over, it looked as if the car had been stompled by Godzilla. But of course, it wasn't Godzilla. That tanker car was crushed, by something much more powerful than even the king of monsters. It was crushed by the air. Today I'd like to talk about the air, what it is, how wondrous it is to live your life completely surrounded by a substance of such immense power, how air connects us in surprising ways, and finally, what air has to teach us about how to live a grateful life. I'm fully expecting that it might be hard to convince some listeners about this. I mean, look around you. You can't see the air. You can't smell it. You can't taste it. Air is the easiest thing to take for granted. But I'm hoping that by the end of this episode, you will never think about air as just the backdrop to your life again. I would like to convince you that air is a wondrous power. It's easy to think of air as kind of a nothing, as something that's not really real. So why don't we start with this? Here's a problem that I give to students in like fifth or sixth grade. I show everyone a deflated basketball. 
I've pushed all the air out so that it is squished and dented, and then I put it on a balance or a scale and weigh it, and write its weight on the board. Say, 550 grams. And then I propose this mystery. I show them a bicycle pump, and I ask them what will happen to the weight of the basketball if I pump it full of air. I've done this exercise maybe a dozen times, and almost every time it stimulates a delightful and good-natured argument. Some students say the ball will get lighter. I mean, air is the lightest thing. Won't it bring lightness to the ball? And others say that the ball will get heavier because you're adding something to it. So that's going to make the weight go up. Another group will say, wait, why should air make a difference at all? Air is nothing. Shouldn't the basketball just weigh the same? And often there's a contingent with perplexed looks on their faces who seem surprised that this kind of question should be so hard. When I ask these students if air weighs something, it's like asking if air is real in the first place. Is it stuff? Is there a there there? And after a fair bit of discussion, it becomes clear that in the absence of further information, all of these ideas are reasonable. And there's only one way to resolve the question. We inflate the ball and we put it on the balance and the balance tips. Where before the ball was 550 grams, now with the added air, it is 558. Air weighs something. It is real. These results surprise the kids not because the numbers are particularly high. Most measurements of the air in the basketball that I've made have been under 10 grams. The reason they surprise students, I think, is because even though we know air is real, in some kind of removed, abstract sense, we don't act as if we really believe it. Imagine how much harder it must have been for people who lived in times before bicycle pumps and rubber tires. For them, the realness of air wouldn't have been obvious at all. Wouldn't it be so much easier to appreciate the awesomeness of air if you could somehow hold it in your hand, talk about its color, or break off a chunk of it? Actually, what if I told you that you could? It turns out air can be turned into a liquid. Air can freeze. Of course, the temperatures at which this happens are unthinkably cold, Even on the most frigid Antarctic night, air won't even get close to liquefying. But us clever humans have done it. If you ever have a wart and go to the dermatologist to have it removed, you will get the experience of liquid air firsthand. The doctor will bring a steaming, bubbling thermos into the exam room. It will be full of a clear liquid. That liquid is nitrogen the major ingredient of air. It is liquid air, so cold that if when the dermatologist dips a Q-tip into the container and she accidentally touches it to your skin instead of the wart, it will feel like a burn as the water in your cells instantaneously turns into ice and shatters the cell membranes like a glass jar left in the freezer. Or how about this? The second key ingredient of air is oxygen. 
and when it is liquefied, it turns a deep glacial blue. A dish full of it is a beauty to behold. What we call dry ice, it is a frozen block of yet another air ingredient, carbon dioxide. To hold a brick of dry ice in your thickly gloved hand, to feel the heft of it, is to never doubt the substantialness, the realness of air again. On July 14, 2015, the New Horizons space probe passed the dwarf planet Pluto, sending spectacular close-up pictures of its surface back to us breathless nerds here on Earth. From Pluto, the sun is so far away that it looks like a bright but otherwise unremarkable star. Pluto's average surface temperature is negative 387 degrees Fahrenheit. That's only about 106 degrees above absolute zero. What I remember most about those pictures wasn't the glacial surface or the ice mountains. It was a couple of hazy white wisps floating in the threadbare Plutonian atmosphere. Could they be clouds? Scientists still aren't sure. The pictures aren't clear enough to really tell. But what if they were clouds? What would they be made of? Not water droplets like on our planet. On Pluto, water is just another kind of rock. It melts less often there than granite does here. If Pluto has clouds at all, it is possible that they are made of some of the same substances that make up air on Earth. Can you imagine a place so cold that air itself falls as snow or forms as dew? Perhaps somewhere, maybe even right here in our own solar system, there are liquid rivers of air eroding hillsides and carrying sediments down to the shores of a brilliant blue oxygen-based ocean. Okay, you may be saying, so air is real. Big whoop. It's not like the air right here is doing anything particularly cool. I mean, maybe if I went to Pluto. But here on Earth, meh. Because, like, air doesn't do anything. But what if I told you that it does? I'm not talking about, like, particularly strong hurricane winds or anything. I'm talking about the air around you right now. Imagine for a second that I could snap my fingers and make the air disappear from Earth. What would happen? My students will sometimes say that we would float off into space, and while that would be awesome, it's not actually true. Gravity doesn't require air. You'd still walk and jump and fall and skin your knee just like usual. But what would change would be totally weird. As listeners to our first episode will know, the blue sky would instantly disappear, and you would see the sun shining right out in space next to her sister stars in the blackness. Shadows would grow suddenly dark and crisp without air there to scatter the light into them and the snap of my fingers that made the air disappear would be silent. All sound would stop, except for the sounds within your own body. I could clap a pair of cymbals just inches from your ear, and all you would hear was silence. 
You could launch a rocket into space from this newly airless Earth. In fact, it would be way easier. But every plane would instantly fall out of the sky. And no matter how much runway you had, it wouldn't be enough for another plane to take off. If you dropped a feather and a hammer from a skyscraper, they would land at almost exactly the same time. Every fire on the planet would cease to burn. So, no gas stoves. But electric stoves would work just fine. In fact, they'd stay hot longer without the air to conduct the heat away. And if you dropped some paper on the stovetop, instead of bursting into flames, it would just char and decompose. Now think of this. Most of the universe is empty of air. We just happen to live in this thin little envelope of it. Sound and sky and flight and fire are all weird things that only happen in the funny condition of living in air. If you found a race of creatures that lived in the void of space, they would buy tickets to see the weird things that happen to us every day. All right, I snap my fingers again. We bring the air back. And now imagine that you're doing the dishes. You grab a glass, you turn it upside down, and you push it, mouth straight down, into the water. And something strange happens. You've got it so that the glass is completely underwater, but there's no water in the glass. Shouldn't it be filling up with water? Scratching your head, you take the glass out, and you wad up a paper towel jam it into the bottom of the glass so it stays there without falling out and then you try it again and just like before you turn the glass upside down put it mouth down into the sink now with the watered up paper towel inside then you pull the glass straight out and the paper towel the paper towel that was completely underwater is dry okay this one you think you can explain it's because the glass is full of air and the air pushes the water out of the way But stay with me. After this, you keep washing glasses and you notice something else even weirder. You've got a glass submerged underwater and you go to grab it and you just happen to pull it out of the sink bottom up. And as you lift it out, the upside down glass remains full of water until the mouth breaks the surface, at which point all the water falls out again. If you do this again, the same thing happens. In fact, if you lift the submerged glass and hold it so that the mouth of it is just under the surface, it will remain full of water as if it were levitating. I bet you've seen this kind of thing before. It's the kind of thing we stop noticing after a decade or two of doing the dishes. But take a moment to think about how weird this is. Why does the water stay up there? Is the glass doing something? Is there some kind of magnetism between the glass and the water? That doesn't make sense. Ah, is it suction, maybe? Maybe the glass is sucking water into itself. But it turns out that the whole idea of suction is wrong. There's no such thing. Wait, what? Of course there's suction. How else could someone drink from a straw or... How does a vacuum cleaner work? What about suction cups, for Christ's sake? I mean, it's even in the name. Well, you're not alone for thinking this. But even in the case of suction cups, air doesn't ever pull 
on anything. The cup never pulls on the water. It turns out that even though nothing is pulling water into the cup, something is pushing it. And that thing, as you might have guessed, is the air. Air is pushing all the time on everything it touches, every wall, every tabletop, every square inch of your skin. When you're doing the dishes, air is pressing down on the counters and the dishes, and here's the key, on the surface of the water in your sink. And that's why the water levitates in your glass. The glass isn't sucking it up. The air in the room pushes down on the water in the sink or the basin right up into the glass. Take a moment to think about that. It's weird. I mean, is there a limit? What if the glass was taller? Or what if we had a really, really tall glass, like a long pipe or a tube with one sealed end? I mean, if we kept redoing this little experiment with taller and taller tubes in a giant basin of dishwater, would I eventually get to a point where the air couldn't push the water all the way to the top? I mean, how much water could the air lift? Turns out that scientists have tried this kind of thing, and time after time, experiment after experiment, the result turns out pretty much the same. Air can push water into a sealed container to a height of about 33 feet, basically to the top of a three-story building, and then it stops. Get a sealed container taller than 33 feet, and the water inside will be pushed up to 33 feet, and then above it, there will be an empty space. First of all, that's one big glass of water. And second of all, why 33 feet? Why not 10 or 100? The first person we know to have figured this out was an Italian scientist in the 1500s named Evangelista Torricelli. And he realized that if the water is being pushed into our glass or our tube by the air, and the water in my glass or my tube weighs something then this 33-foot limit is basically the limit of the strength of the air in the room. It's like, hey, air, how much can you bench? With a little math, you can figure out that this comes down to a whopping 15 pounds of force on every square inch. That's about the weight of a bowling ball of every surface on Earth, including on you. Come on, man. That's hard to believe. Like, I can't feel 15 pounds on every square inch of me. And lots of people in Torricelli's time surely felt that way. Then, in the mid-1600s, a politician and scientist with a keen sense of showmanship named Otto von Guericke devised a demonstration of those 15 pounds per square inch that just blew people's minds. Von Guericke took two big metal bowls, about as wide as your arm, smeared grease on the lips of the bowls, and fitted them together to make a big ball, like a sphere. He had invented one of history's first air pumps, and he used it to pump out almost all of the air from inside the sphere. Now, mind you, there are no latches or clasps holding these cups together. Pulling them apart usually would be no problem. You could do it by hand. But after von Guericke pumped all the air out, that changed completely. Nobody 
was strong enough to pull the sphere apart. Even if you hooked each cup to a rope and had a tug-of-war between a bunch of burly guys, they couldn't do it. In a famous picture of this experiment, two teams of horses are pulling on the sphere, and even they couldn't open it. To give you a sense of just how much force that is, one of those teams of horses could have pulled a school bus down the road. And the only thing holding those cups together was the 15 pounds of pressure on every inch of the outside. It was the air, a force so strong that not even a team of horses could overcome it. So this brings us back to where we started, doesn't it? Remember that tanker car? When the Mythbusters steam-cleaned the inside of that car, lots of the air inside the tanker got pushed out. Some was displaced by the steam, some was pushed out because air expands when it's heated. So when the door closed and the tanker was sealed, there was a lot less air inside the tanker than usual, and a lot less than the air outside. I bet you can guess the rest of the story. Usually the tanker cars don't get crushed by the outside air because the air inside the car pushes out just as hard as the air outside the car pushing in. But in the steam-cleaned tanker car, without that balancing force, crunch, 15 pounds per square inch, squeezes down from every side, and the giant tanker is flattened. Look at your hand right now. Look at your body. You are literally withstanding the kind of pressure that could crush a railroad tanker. Life is awesome. When air is pushing down on something, what exactly is doing the pushing? Imagine you had your own metal cup sphere and started pumping air out of it. What are you actually pumping out? I mean, when it gets right down to it, what we're asking is what is air? And like everything else about air, it's weird. Air is made up of individual little pieces. Von Gericke's pump worked by scooping up handfuls or scoopfuls of individual bits of air and tossing them outside. Inside the sphere, the number of individual pieces would go down and down until theoretically you could just have a hundred of them, or twenty, or five, or one. One individual piece of air. Sometimes this is hard for my students to understand. They think, well, what's filling up the rest of the container? They want to know what's between the air pieces. But there's nothing. And they'll say, what do you mean, nothing? How can there be nothing? And they're not the first people to have trouble imagining that. And I'm not sure what else to say. That space is completely empty. But those individual pieces, those tiny little pieces, are what give air its force. When scientists use the words air pressure, they mean it really literally. Little pieces of air are literally pressing or pushing or bumping into something. Now, of course, each one has a force so tiny that no one could feel it, so small that even with a million of them all colliding at once, you'd probably miss it. But when you multiply that tiny force by millions and millions of millions of millions, then you can make a tire feel solid or crush a steel rail car. It is an absolutely astounding number of tiny collisions. The numbers are so mind-bendingly vast. 
A thimble, for example. A thimble could contain a number of air pieces in the quintillions. That's a billion trillions. That's more words than human beings have ever uttered in the entire history of language. That's more gallons of water than there would be on three Earths. It's a number so staggering that you can't possibly imagine it. All in a container so small that a mouse could use it as a coffee mug. Imagine the uncountable quantity of them that you must take in with every breath. Speaking of breath, here's another place where it's hard not to try and explain things with the idea of suction. But like before, you never suck air into your lungs. Your lungs can't pull on the little air pieces. And you don't push air into your lungs either. So what gives? How do you get air into your lungs at all? When you breathe, you contract this upside-down hammock of a muscle right near the bottom of your ribs. And as you do, that muscle, your diaphragm, pulls downward and expands the space inside your lungs. And that's it. All you do is make the room inside of you bigger. So why does air come in? Well, think for a moment about the air in front of your nose, made of little pieces, all moving around like dancers in a crowded mosh pit, with sextillions of other little air dancers, too. All of them moving around, colliding, moshing into each other, pushing on each other. And when that extra space opens up in your lungs, you don't have to do a thing. That crowded group of dancers push each other into you. The atmosphere pushes itself into you. All you have to do is make room. And those pieces of air don't just stop in your lungs. They get jostled right into the cells of your body. They dissolve into you, spreading everywhere until you have little air pieces bumbling around in every cell of your heart, of your skin, your fingers, your legs, your bones, every living cell. Right now, you are breathing in pieces of air that used to be pieces of wood or gasoline, but that got burned. And now, little pieces of air called carbon dioxide that used to be atoms in wood or gasoline go into you. When your neighbor eats their breakfast, their body burns the little bagel molecules into other pieces of carbon dioxide, which eventually wander out through their lungs and into the air. And they get mixed into the air and spread out. And so right now, you and me, all of us, are breathing in pieces of air that used to be bagels and that used to be us. We are all breathing in little bits of each other. And I think this is my favorite thing about air. It literally connects us all. Just like the air, I am made of pieces. And the pieces that you and I and everyone you know of are made of, they all got pulled out of the air by some plant, and then you ate them, or ate some animal that ate the plant, and then you made those pieces into your body. All you are. All any of us are is recycled air, and bits of you are becoming air again. 
It makes me wonder, where do I begin? Where do you end? When all of us are made of each other. In a physics textbook, the author writes that probabilistically, your next lungful will contain an atom or two of Julius Caesar and Cleopatra, an atom or two of Montezuma and Cortez, an atom or two of Hitler and the Buddha, saints and sinners, artists and robber barons, through the air, we are literally all one. So where does that leave us? What do we take away from all of this weirdness about air? We spent most of this episode talking about science, but it's worth mentioning that the Latin word for breath, the root word of both inspire and expire, is spiritus, spirit. Etymologically speaking, breathing is the most spiritual act. There is another meaning of the word inspire to fill someone with a desire or a conviction or an emotion. And air, I think, provides this other kind of inspiration too. John Green writes that from the quark to the supernova, the wonders do not cease. It is our attentiveness that is in short supply, our ability and willingness to do the work that awe requires. It's hard to wake up to wonder sometimes. Life is busy There's so many bills to pay and so many dreams to follow and loved ones to find and loved ones passing away. There are things big and small to worry about and so very, very many important TikTok videos to watch. And even if we do stop and take the time to ponder and look, so many of the amazing things around us, so many wonders are as invisible as the air. But beauty is pressing in on us from all sides, like the incredible 15 pounds per square inch of the air on our skin. And we have grown acclimated to it. In this way, beauty and air pressure are the same. Of course, we can't feel them most of the time. We were born into them. We've lived our whole lives in them. But they are real, whether we see them or not. What grace to live in a world so wonderful that even when we are a terrible audience to its grandeur, the sky continues to be its impossible blue, and people continue to be kind to strangers, and the air does not stop holding us, or connecting us, or keeping everyone you love alive. People say that the aim of science is to explain the world, and to some extent that is true. But I think just as importantly, science is there to help us continue to wonder at things when we think we've got them all figured out. Sometimes it might take an imploding railroad car to remind us of it, but the bizarre beauty of air, like so many things, is always there, waiting patiently for us to find joy in it. Joy that is as close as our breath. My Heart This is written, edited, and produced by me, Ben Lord. Our logo was designed by Bryony Morrow Cribs. Our theme song was composed by Lynn Music and is used with permission from Neosounds.com. You can listen to our show and find more things to love at our website, iHeartThisPodcast.com, and check us out on Facebook at iHeartThisPodcast, where we post little tidbits now and then. 
We make no money off of this. There is no Patreon to sign up for. The only payment we get for this show is the satisfaction of knowing that it might spread a little bit more appreciation for just how amazing this world is. So, if you'd like to support us, we'd love it if you told your friends about us. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, be kind, be curious, and be thankful.